Thank you so much for your goodness and your mercies that are new every day. We partake and we've received of your goodness, grace for grace, even today. Thank you for having kept us for two weeks as we've afflicted our soul, seeking your face to behold you, to inquire your temple, and to hear your voice. Thank you, Father God, that we are getting to know you more and more each day. Thank you for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit within us and among us and upon us. Thank you for your people, Father God. We bless you tonight as we come to dine at your table. Holy Spirit, help us tonight. Teach us, guide us, and we honor you. And we give you all the glory and all of the honor, even in advance, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. And amen. You are most welcome. Thank you very much. Praise God. We need to move right along tonight. Um, I cut the praise and worship a little bit so we can get a little more time uh, for the word. But let me just say to you at the outset that if we need to, I may have to take a little extra five minutes. So please. Uh, if you just indulge me on that five or ten minutes, if we will need it. All right. Praise God. Uh, John chapter 15. This is the 15th day of this fast. And uh, I'm not going to teach verse by verse on John 15 tonight because of what uh, uh, other things that we need to address. But what we need to do, though, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of John chapter 15 so you still have a very good working knowledge of what the scripture is saying to us in this chapter. There are four main things that John chapter 15 uh, is helping us to, uh, to understand. Uh, number one, the relationship between the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the relationship between each believers. Thirdly, the relationship of the believer to the world. And then lastly, the last couple of verses, chapter 15, addresses the promise of the Holy Spirit to the believers. Those are the four main things in John chapter 15. However, tonight I want to address some of the more difficult passages leading up to now in this uh, time that we've been together. Uh, John chapter 15, let's just read verses 1 and 2. Say, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, it takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, it prunes that it may bear more fruit. I just thought since this was the beginning or the opening of John chapter 15, it would just be as good to spend this time to address this and then go back to John chapter 10 as well and just address the whole of those issues together. Because in John chapter 10, let me read that part that we did not read earlier. Uh, John chapter 10, in verse 27. The last Wednesday when we were teaching, we didn't get this far because of time. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. 
My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. So tonight, let's just address a foundational, uh, I won't even call it a question, or a foundational uh, doctrine in the body of Christ, just so we can be properly established on what God is saying to us. So I ask the question, at what point, or under what circumstance can a believer lose their salvation? And hopefully tonight, we're going to address that. Having said that, uh, I want to give you a little background here. As a new believer for me, 32 years ago, remember that my friend, I, I had a friend in the church where we got born again, Gerald Boveland, and we majored on this argument. Uh, me and him found people that we just want to argue with and just debate, uh, you know, uh, can a believer lose their salvation or can they not lose their salvation? I mean, it was, I mean, we just, uh, as new babes in Christ, we just, it was like they gave us a tool, like a little toy, and we just got excited about this. Uh, we, 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 we find people out on our jobs, we find them in the marketplace, find them in the neighborhoods, and just want to know, what, what do you believe? What's, what's, your, what's your position? And, uh, and looking back now, I just said to myself, wow, because some of those discussions got out of hand, became argumentative, and, and unfortunately, because we, were just, uh, we had a lot of zeal and no wisdom, uh, we, we, we just want to just push whatever position we had down the throat of that individual, and when they didn't receive it, it, it can become a little animosity, you know? All right. Therefore, because of that, because of that position, because of, I, I have, because of me having been through that, because of the fact that I understand the uh, sensitivity behind this kind of thing and the, and the kind of animosity it can create if care is not taken, I'm acutely aware of three things tonight that can happen. Number one, the truth will be established. Number two, some of us will challenge what I'm saying because of preconceived belief system. And lastly, some of us just get annoyed with me. Any of three things. But my prayer is we'll fall more in the median of these first two. That truth will be established. And even still, I think it's very, it's very healthy if you hear something and you challenge it. And that challenge leads you and drives you to a place of prayer and study. So you can search things out for yourself and in so doing, arrive at a conclusion that you yourself are come. So really, that would be a good, a good place. Now, having said that, let's go first of all in the scriptures to 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 2. Second, the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Hallelujah. God is good. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Like I said to you earlier, back in those days, I just assumed that whatever I heard other people saying that tickled my pleasure, that that had to be the right position. Not because I stored it to show myself approval to God. Okay? So we need to know that we are living in a day and a time when it's not just sufficient 
to hear something from the pulpit, but we must become like the Berean Christians in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, where the Bible says the Bereans, having heard what Paul taught and preached, they received it, but they now went back and began to search the scriptures more diligently to see if these things be so. Particularly in a day and time when we have 24-7 TV, 24-7 radio, you can just about tune to a station and find somebody saying what you like to hear without any effort. Amen? So that's, that's number one. Let me go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm laying a background. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we see that the Bible says here, all of scripture is been given by God as an inspiration. And therefore, whenever we are talking about doctrine or trying to establish the truth, it is very, very important that we do not isolate ourselves to just one or two verses of scripture, but that we look at the body of scripture and look at the harmony of those scriptures and see how God is leading us to a truth based upon the harmony of the body of scripture. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Amen? All right, the approach we're going to take tonight, oh, for, first of all, let, let me talk about some of the, uh, let, I won't talk about it, but let me just throw out some of the verses that's, uh, that's created divergent views within the body. I just read one, John 15, verse 2. John 15, verse 2, where the Bible says, any branch that does not produce any fruit will be cut away. And there are three, inter- three possible interpretations of that. I'll get to that later. I won't, I won't touch that now. Then there's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, that talks about fornicators, adulteries, covetousness, and that such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? And then there's 1 Corinthians chapter th- uh, 6, verses 9 through 11. Now, there, are, there are may be more passages, but these are just some that are just brought out to help us see the potential for the discussion and divergent view within the body of Christ. Those scriptures seem to imply that people who are born again, who are involved in certain activities, will definitely not see the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Now, having given you that, let me tell us what the approach to our study will be tonight. I want to teach tonight doctrine as stated in scriptures and then use the scriptures to answer the questions. Okay, let, let, let me say that in a, in a different way. The approach I want to use tonight is the similar approach to what the bank used. Not bank, Akimola Bank. Wakuvia Bank, or the West Fargo Bank now, or SunTrust Bank, or PNC Bank. Whenever they, were, whenever they are training bank officers or tellers, okay, they do not train them with the use of counterfeit. They will train them with real, true, genuine currency. Why? Because they, say, because they know that if they can teach them and train them using real currency, when the counterfeit shows up, they immediately recognize it. What has happened in the body of Christ is that 
some of us take one or two verses of scriptures without the totality and the harmony of the Christ doctrine. And so we're trying to establish truth using, quote-unquote, counterfeit currency rather than understanding the genuine currency and identify the counterfeit when you see, when you see that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Good. Having said that, let's move on. What did Jesus say to us about this whole thing we're talking about? Uh, we, there's, there's a trail, and I don't have time to go through all the trail. But many of us are well-versed in some of them. I think the most common one that everybody can almost quote is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world and he gave, that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him shall, what? shall not perish but have everlasting life. So that's one. Uh, but, but the real deal we can find in John chapter 10. Let's go there together. John chapter 10. Where I did not get to the other day. John chapter 10. From verse 27 through 29. John 10, 27 through 29. I really want to encourage you, read with me tonight, pay attention, and just be open to the Spirit of God. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, let's unpack what Jesus is saying. Let's unpack what he's saying. Jesus told us four things in that verse, in those two, uh, a few verses. Four things he said very clearly. Number one, his sheep hear his voice and follow have I changed scripture? No, sir. Is that what he said? Okay. Number two. These are indisputable things that Jesus said. Number two. He, Jesus, gives them eternal life. Now, it is important for you to understand the tense in which this, that, that, that statement was made. It is in the present indicative tense. Why is that important? It is important because of the meaning it connotes. It means not only that it gives them eternal life, it means it keeps on giving them eternal life. So it's not just something you get yesterday and tomorrow is, is dissipated, it's gone. No. It, it's a continuous thing. Okay? This is what Jesus is saying is holding you and I. The power of eternal life. It is the quality of life which comes so continually to us that enables you and I to give up anything else for. Oh, you didn't hear me. To have eternal life. The life of God, Zoe, the God kind of life. In, on a continuous basis. This is the kind of life that allows me to look at something and say, no, 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 this is not worth losing this for. No trade-off at all. No trade-off at all. So that's number two. Number three thing Jesus said in John chapter 10 is that that eternal life has an element of assurance. Yes. Am I making this up? 
Do you see it there? You know, as I was studying this and preparing for this, I remember the uh, uh, popular all-state insurance uh, commercial. We simply says, you are in good hands. But Jesus is saying to us, we are in God's hands. This eternal life he's given us has an assurance to it. What assurance? The assurance that eternal life will never end nor perish. This kind of life that God has in him that he's given us, it disdains death and it survives death. The fourth thing he said, the fourth thing he said from that John chapter 10 passage, this is a life that is guarded, kept, and protected by two unconquerable beings. Ah, you guys are not hearing me. Religion has some breaks on some of your minds tonight, but God will break it in Jesus' name. Because this is truth. It is both guarded, kept, and protected by two beings that can never be conquered. He said, you cannot snatch them out of my hand and as if that's not good enough, no, my father's hands. What a wonderful view of our safety. Paul, the apostle, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, put the two together. He said, your life is hid in, with Christ in God. Where did Paul get that from? When Jesus said, my hand, you can't snatch it. My father's hand, you can't snatch it. Two hands. So Paul says, your life is hid with Christ inside of God. I'm praying that God will let the lights go off in our minds tonight so that we do not allow the blindness of religiosity to stop us from entering into that place that God has for us. In Jesus' name. I told you when we studied the book of John how Jesus said, I am the door. And there was no door, only an entry place. And he was the one that led between the entry place. And no one can go in or out except through by him. Yes. Let's read one scripture. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In verse 38. Apostle Paul speaking here. He said, for I am persuaded... That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what? Back in those days, one of our uh, calling cards in, in our debate and argument, when we've argued back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and, and we can't win the argument, so we find ourselves, okay, all right. Okay, maybe, maybe uh, yeah, you know, nobody can snatch out of God's hand, but you can live on your own. You can crawl out on your own. No, no, read the scriptures. Let me read it again for you. Let me read it for you. Go for, my, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Are you created? If we are a created thing, God said, even you that is created cannot. Dr. Nitati, are you still with me? (laughs) This is a wonderful view of our safety. No one, not even ourselves, can remove ourselves from his protective custody. Let me just throw this out right now. 
What is the litmus test for Christianity? What's the litmus test? Because the biggest confusion for all of us is this word Christianity or Christian or born again believer. What's, how do you know a person that's born again? How do you know a person, or let me say this, how do you know that you are, you are born again? Very simple. Jesus said it to us, John chapter 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If you are born again, the litmus test is you must hear God. Oh, I wonder tonight, why as a human person dying, hearing is the last thing they lose. A person on the deathbed can lose all the other senses, but they can still hear. I wonder why. I'll leave that alone for another day. The litmus test for a believer. You must hear God. What is the essence of eternal life when John 17.3 defines it? This is life eternal. That you may get to know the true God and Jesus Christ whom we are sent. Do you know your children? Yes, sir. Do you talk to them? Yes, sir. Are you certain? Yes, sir. They hear you when you talk to them? Oh, oh they have to. Okay. That's a little test. If you're not hearing God, something is wrong with your salvation. Before we get into debates and arguments that, that, that's, that's endless and any vanity, these are the core issues. Jesus made a plan. My sheep hear my voice and if they are deaf of me, it will heal them. They hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. They obey me, he said. So, let me just move on because of time here. The entire book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews is given to contrast the two covenants. The covenant of law under Moses and the new covenant. Therefore, you will be hard pressed to appreciate the new if you don't know the old. The reason I can say what I'm saying tonight with the confidence and the help of the Holy Spirit is because over these last two months, in fact, let, let, me just, let me just say this to you guys. What I'm sharing with you tonight, I didn't see it like this up to two months ago. The first time I began to see this, I was standing here preaching on Psalm 23. And I, in that message, I mentioned something, and as I mentioned it, God said, there you go. Oh, I can tell you. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow you. Shall follow me all the days of my life. That's not what got me. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When I said that out of my mouth, God said, you just spoke your deliverance. I went back home. I fought that thing. I brought my religiosity to play. I put the scriptures together and every argument I'm making, I'm seeing the Holy Ghost just cancel them out. Listen, we can fight scriptures. It's an option. But I'm free. And I love my freedom. Hallelujah! Glory be to God. Listen, folks, you have not begun to see where God is taking us. The entire book of Hebrews. The entire book. So God had to appeal to my Old Testament foundation. He said, I'll teach you through what I know you know. That's what happened. I'm going to show you some things now. 
If you refute John chapter 10 and say, well, Jesus, maybe he was smoking something when he said that. Okay, let's go to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, I guess I better go there first. Verses 11 through 17. Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 17. Look at what it says. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice Sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, in fact, maybe I should call Pastor Neil up front because he likes that bot word. He used that to pray on Sunday morning. Maybe, but I'm, I'm coming before him just so I can. I want him to be. I want him to look at me very, very. Let, let me get in front of me here. But this man, Pastor Ne, after he had offered one sacrifice. For sins forever. Sat down. At the right hand of God. From that time. Waiting till his enemies have made his full stool. For by one offering. He has perfected. Forever. Those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, let me unpack this for you. That's verse 14 alone. There are three things in there. Hebrews 10, 14. Three things in verse 14 alone. Number one, we're told that Jesus made just one sacrifice. One. Now you can begin to appreciate why God was so upset with Moses. When he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it once and striking it once. Because by the striking of the rod, he was symbolically speaking about the Messiah that would be stricken at Calvary. So by doing it twice, it was like an insult to God that you're going to nail Jesus to the cross twice. And for that reason, the man did not see the promised land. Because God was not going to play with this issue. Jesus' sacrifice and offering is a one and one time deal. End of story. Second thing we see from that verse 14. We are told that from that sacrifice, he perfected them. Perfected means completed. It finished. My goodness, what do we not understand about perfected? By that one sacrifice, he perfected it. Oh, maybe we should read Hebrews 7 verse 19, where the Bible tells us very clearly that the law made nothing perfect. The covenant of the law, the Mosaic covenant, the Bible tells us, Hebrews 7 verse 19, I don't have time to read it, that that covenant made nothing perfect. Oh, we need to read it, please. Please, Hebrews chapter 7. We may as well. Hebrews 7. For the Lord made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Let's go Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. From verse 9. Oh, no, no, verse 11 is good enough. Hebrews 9, 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. 
with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He didn't obtain a, a conditional redemption. He obtained an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ listen to this, who through the what? Eternal spirit offered himself with that spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So three things in verse 14. Number one, one offering. Number two, through that one offering we are perfected. Number three, in that verse 14, it said forever. That's the duration of this perfection. How are you going to misinterpret that? He offered it once and for all, made us perfect in the offering, and the Bible tells us the duration. How long is it for? Forever. Now, let's take a look now at this new covenant itself. I've told you what Jesus said. I've read to you Hebrews chapter 10 that breaks down the offering, what it did, and how long it's in force for. Now look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. This is Paul breaking down for you and I the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning from verse 6. Please read this. This is critical. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Good God Almighty. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue my covenant and I disregarded them. Let me just stop there. Let me just break it down because of time. So here again, Paul is saying so many things to us in Hebrews 8. Number one, that verse 6 says to me and you that Jesus is bringing to us a more excellent ministry. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what what, what makes it more excellent? Because this is a a contrast, a comparison between the old and the new. And we have been told what Jesus has for us today is a much more excellent ministry. Why is that so? Very simple. Moses' covenant came through the letter of the Lord that killeth. But the ministry of Jesus comes through the power of the Spirit that quickens. Oh, hallelujah! Oh, I'm about to, I just want to, I don't know, I want to run through the wall. Glory to God. It's not just a letter that says, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not laugh. No. What he has brought into play not only tells you what to do, it enables you to treat. It's the spirit of God that quickens. Number two, we are told in verse nine, 
we are told that this is a better covenant. So now we see this excellent ministry, okay? Why is it a better? How, how is it a better covenant than what we had? How? <laughs> Let me tell you. Because this new covenant, ladies and gentlemen, will not be based on performance. Under the old covenant of Moses, it was tit for tat. You obey me, I'll bless you. You do this, I'll do that. You don't do this, you don't get that. Performance oriented. But this new covenant will not be based on performance. But, but as much as that is so true, let me tell you why it is a better covenant. Let me, let me take you to the word of God and say to yourself. Man, I'm, God, I'm so happy. I get a chance to explode over these two months. This, this thing has been, has been percolating. I finally get a chance to just explode. Please, read this Hebrews chapter 8. Look at that verse, that verse 9. Read it again. Look at the contrast that God, Hebrews 8, 9. Look at the contrast he draws. He said, the covenant I'm going to give you is not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. What's the point? What's the punchline? Because they did not continue in my covenant or because they did not obey me, I disregarded them. This is the difference. That covenant, the old one, was based on their performance and their ability to obey. God said when they could not obey, I disregarded them. I canceled them. I punished them. I gave them reprimand. But the covenant I'm going to come with you is not going to be like that. Can you just shout? Somebody just shout hallelujah. Yes. How much clearer can it get? I'm reading, ladies and gentlemen, from the New Testament. This is not the book of Numbers. It's not the book of Leviticus. This is Hebrews. New Testament scripture. God said the covenant I'm going to cut with you will not be like the one that you are familiar with. So it's not only an excellent ministry, it's also a better covenant. Ah, but that's not all. We are also told it's based on better promises. Oh, hallelujah! What are these better promises? Just understand, first of all, in this new covenant, God takes the initiative for your success. Because you and I didn't think we needed a new covenant before he gave it. We didn't ask him for it. He was the one evaluating what is going on. I said, Greg, this mosaic thing, you are trying. But you will not get perfect with this thing. On his own accord, on his own initiative, he said, I will enact a new covenant. An excellent ministry based on a better covenant that's based on better promises. What are these promises? Number one, it says, I'll put my laws in their hearts and their minds. You will not have to depend on Moses again. You will not have to depend on Bank Akimola again. Or whoever your favorite preacher is. No! Because the Spirit of God will give you life. 
And I've told you guys, when I got born again, I was an owner, I was an owner of a nightclub. Three weeks born again. My preacher, I had not preached about sanctification. I didn't know anything about holiness. Nobody told me about, no, I, none of those things. On my own accord, based on a life of God within me, told my wife, we can't go back there. Mind you, I have taken six months leave of absence from a good paying job. I was in week number three of six months when God saved me. So for the rest of the duration, I had no job but to sit at the feet of Jesus. Because I left my job, I've quit the nightclub, so the only thing I had was just sit at his feet and drink and eat and drink and eat. That was my foundation. So don't tell me that God cannot teach us. Don't tell me we need a paid clergy to tell you about God. You don't need me or any other preacher you've idolized. What you need is the power of the Holy Spirit and the life-giving power of God in your life. That was God's promise. I am taking initiative for your success. So what I will do is, to guarantee your success, I'm going to write your laws in my, both in your heart and your mind. Number two. <laughs> Religion is going to fight this number two. But you see it in Hebrews 8. It's there. I'm not making it up. Number two, he said, I will show mercy to them in their unrighteousness. Pastor Neil, what do you say to this? That's my friend. And it's my son. God said in your righteousness, I am taking, the, I'm giving you a promise. As unrighteous as you get under this new covenant, I will show you mercy. Now, if you don't want it, give it up. But I'm telling you what comes with the package. And I know that God is faithful to his word because he's done it before. He told the lesser son of Christ, David. He said, David, we've enjoyed something. As a result of my relationship with you, David, your son that's coming after you to sit on the throne. When he messes up, I will not deal with him like I did with the kings before him. That's what he said about Solomon. Read it. It's in the scriptures. So you wonder why David did what he did. I mean, Solomon did what he did and God didn't, didn't kill him. God did not break the, his kingdom until after him. Listen, some of these things I don't understand. So let, me, let, let me tell you that up front. No, seriously. Some of these things, when we see God, maybe he will tell us if he chooses. But as far as I'm concerned, the things God has promised me, I will not allow the devil for one second Amen. to try to steal it away from me. In the name of Jesus. Oh my goodness. I see if that is not enough. Better promises. Number one, give the laws in our heart and mind. Number two, show mercy in our righteousness. Then number three, this one blows away the religious people. They can't take it. Is that your sins and your transgressions I will remember no more. He's making a quality decision. You didn't ask him not to remember. He has the capacity to remember everything he wants to, but he has chosen that regarding bank 
Olusegun Akinmola. I will not ever remember his sins or his transgressions. Why? Because I'm not looking at bank. I'm looking at who is hiding in. Christ. The rock. How are you going to argue with this? Now let me help us understand where we really get confused. I believe it's the issue of justification versus sanctification. The biggest problem for you and I is we see a person who professes to be a Christian or who in fact may be a Christian and we see some tendencies in their life, some inconsistencies, maybe some things they do, you just say, man, these guys, this guy can be saved. Based on what we're saying, we're confusing two different issues that does not connect to what, well, it connects but that does not, uh, uh, how, how can I put this? That, that does not cancel out one another. Justification is one thing. Sanctification begins after your, sanctif- uh, your justification. And, okay, let, 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 let me say better like this. Justification is a one-size-fit-all phenomenon. One size. Everybody will be justified through the blood of Jesus Christ End of story, period. Whether you're Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you are. Everybody's justified by faith in and through the power of the blood of Jesus. One size fits all. It's an instantaneous thing. It happens in the nanosecond of a moment. It's done and that's it. Justified. Let me break it down further. Understand that as human beings, we have been all found guilty before God. Sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us. But when Jesus went to the cross, he appeased the wrath of God and fulfilled judicially all the penalty that was due me and you when we were sinners. And so in effect... When you trusted in the blood of Jesus, God said, because you believe in what my son did, you are justified. Or you've been cases against you. Ah, you don't get it yet. I'm going somewhere with this. Let me give you two contemporary examples. Everybody will remember this name. George Zimmerman. Yes, sir. Killed a little boy. Pled self-defense. The people of Florida versus George Zimmerman. Presented the case. Argued the case. And jurors of his peer returned a non-guilty verdict. Can he be tried again for that offense? No! Why? He was justified. However, since his justification so to speak. We saw the many run-ins he's had with the law. And we've come to say, this guy, man, how did he get away with this thing? But our opinion and our sentiment of his current condition, does he change and vacate the justification? No! Oh. Oh, 
maybe, maybe, maybe you don't like you don't like George Zimmerman. How about Casey Anthony? Same Florida, thank goodness. Most of us had her in jail. I, for one, I, I had measured her prison cell. I mean, I was just looking to move her, move her furniture in and just get her there for life. God before the state. Yes, sir. Argued the case. The jurors of her peer returned a non-guilty verdict. In spite of all the inconsistencies. And you and I are crying, Holy Mother, Holy Mother. Does it count? Does it vacate the verdict? No! Why? Because there's a distinction between justification and sanctification. Our problem is, we are looking at people, and we are seeing how they are living, and we are confused and concerned that this one is doing this, this one is doing that. Therefore, they can't be saved. Or if they are saved, they won't go to heaven. Who are you to say that? When did you become the landlord of heaven? That's our problem. That's the only reason we cannot receive what God is saying. It's too clear. And mind you, I was like that. I need to remind you, 32 years I was like that. Why? Because I only believe what others have said. I never searched the scriptures for myself. Sanctification is a different game. It addresses the life after justification. That's the essence of what Jesus was saying in John chapter 13. We don't have time to address that now. When he was cleaning their feet. He said, I've washed you. But because you are out there walking every day, you still get some defilement. So I wash your feet to clean you from the daily defilements. A bath versus foot washing. A bath cleans the entire body. Fish, I mean, feet washing only cleans your feet. That's another day entirely. So the issue for you and I as justified born again people is that we must constantly wash in the washing of the water by the word of God on a daily basis to keep us pure from the environment in which we live in. We are still living in a sin-filled, sin-doomed world and society. So sanctification, therefore, is a lifelong process. You don't, in those days, we, in the church where we got born again, we, we, we give testimonies. Ah, I give you honor to Jesus, who's the head of our life. Ah, ah, I'm born again, saved, filled, and sanctified. We are being sanctified, but you are not sanctified. I don't know if you understand. Sanctification is a process. It's a daily thing. As long as you live on the earth, you will continue to be sanctified. So for me to arrive and say, I'm sanctified, it's already done. See, my justification is finished. But my sanctification is ongoing. This is the key that we must all learn. Justification, I said to you, is a one-size-fits-all. Sanctification is not a one-size-fits-all. Why? We're at various levels of development. A new baby in Christ will not know some things that a more developed Christian knows. Therefore, they still do silly things. So we cannot box them 
in a one-size-fits-all sanctification. What are we going to do with Romans 11? Verse 29. Where it says, The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. What are you going to do with that? You're going to ignore that? When the greatest gift we ever received is the free gift of eternal life. And the Bible said that gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Do you know what irrevocable means? Pastor Nate, do you know what it means, sir? Can you tell me what it, can you shout it out for me what it means? It means irrevocable. <laughs> yeah. Irrevocable. You can't turn it around. You can't change it. You can't fight it and kick the bucket and say, you know, I, want to, I don't like this God. No, 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 God. No. Let's, let's blot this out. Wow. You didn't die for the sins of the world. You have no right to say that. Now, having said that, and I know time has gone, but let me just address very quickly, as much as I can, the key difficult passages. John 15 verse 2, what I just threw out. Okay? Because I don't want you to be... And, and, and really, we may not be able to address everything here tonight. Because time will not permit us to do so. But I've given you enough to get you thinking. Yes, sir. But John chapter 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bring forth fruit, it says it's going to cut away. So depending on where you are on the sides of, the, of, the, of your position, there are three ways people read that. Number one, some say that means Christians who are not fruitful, they will be lost. They will, their salvation will be destroyed. Based on what I've told you so far, do you think that's viable? <laughs> you are learning very well. And see, listen, listen. You, you, you have to be careful. You must compare scripture in the light of the other scriptures. You cannot just take one passage or one verse and build a doctrine on that. You get into heresy. So another popular position is well, maybe uh, uh, they are real Christians and because they are not bringing forth food, uh, is that the first one I said that they will be lost? Is that one? Okay, the other position says Maybe they are not believers, and therefore they didn't bring forth any food, and there's no problem. And I think the third one, I'm trying to recall this. The third one says something to the fact, oh, okay, the third one says they can in fact be believers, bringing forth no fruit. Their works will be destroyed and burnt, but their spirit will be saved. And really, that's just cut through the chase. You go and read First Corinthians chapter three, verse fifteen. Paul nails it. He says, "Believers with either no works or bad works that they are, they are, they are no no works that, that they will they will lose their reward. They will be cast their their, their, their works will be cast out, but they themselves will be saved." Very. I'm not changing the word as clear as that. First Corinthians chapter three, verse fifteen. First Corinthians three verse fifteen. So, what, what, what do? How do we deal with this John fifteen two? Let me tell you how to deal with it. In fact, I read this John fifteen verse two in the NET translation. If you have an iPad, you go to U version, NET translation. You know, seriously, I'm trying to give you myself so you so you understand how some of these uh, positions. In that verse two, where the scripture says "cut away," there's a little. Uh, What's the thing? 
Pardon me? Yes, italicized. There's a little thing there. You click on it, and it gives you this whole commentary on that. It's about one and a half pages. That's why I will not read it to you. It's, it's still voluminous. But the conclusion there is, listen. This branch are people who are professing to be Christians. They talk like Christians, look like Christians. They know the Christianese, but they were never born again. I.e., Judas Iscariot. He walked like a sheep. He bleated like a sheep. He slept with sheep. He had learned the language of sheep. It just was never one. There are many people that have been in church long enough. They know the tradition. They know the routine. They know everything about church. So was he justified? No, Judas was not justified, sir. No. I'll, I'll just feel it down on the sidebar. Jesus made it clear, Matthew chapter 7. Many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in your name? Mighty miracle working power in your name. He did deny it. Oh, the only problem is, I never knew you. Depart from me. You that work iniquity. Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm sorry, I'm going a little beyond time here. Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 5. Again, that's the one that talks about the issue of fornication, adultery, and that such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. You need to understand something about the book of Ephesians. It's broken into two parts. The first three chapters addresses your position and privilege in Christ. And the last three chapters addresses our practical outworking of our Christian life. Okay? First three chapters talk about acceptance, redemption, forgiveness, you're being sealed with the Holy Spirit, and so forth and so on. Now, again, Ephesians chapter 5. If you read it, in fact, let's just go read that one, please. Ephesians 5. Because I know there are some of you who can't sleep tonight because you are worrying about someone that's in adultery. How are they going to go to heaven with you? Ephesians chapter 5. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting, as, as is fitting for sins. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For, now listen to this sentence. This verse 5. For this you know. For this you know. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Remember, for three chapters he's been telling, telling them about their inheritance. But look at verse 6. This is Kincha. Let no one deceive you with what? Empty words. He was not talking about you, believer, being in this situation. He's saying there will be among you people who look like sheep, talk like sheep, dance like sheep, press like sheep, but don't let them deceive you. They are not. Yes. Do I need to say anymore? I asked the question at the beginning. At what point or under what circumstance can anyone who is born again be lost? Now let me answer it to you. No one who has ever placed their trust in Jesus Christ can ever be lost again. not possible. Now, the issue is are people genuinely born again? That's the cross. Many people have leaves, fig leaves, but they don't have the corresponding fruit of the eternal life. 
If a person, I mean, are you going to deny what God just said? That if you have eternal life, he's going to place his spirit in you. Either you believe that or you don't. You cannot tell me that you believe that God is going to place his spirit in you and then at the same time say, this is mutually exclusive. If we are going to be intellectually honest. But this is my question. For the proponents of conditional salvation. Tell me which one of the sins constitute the loss of salvation? The sins of omission or the sins of commission? Which one would people lose their salvation for? Because do you know how sometimes you can do things that offend other people and you're not even aware of it? That's number one question. You must answer it. (laughs) Number two question. When does this loss happen? Do I lose this salvation on the first occurrence of my sin or the 19th one? <laughs> if I can lose it, when do I lose it? The first time I sinned or the 19th time or the one who, when? When does it happen? When Jesus said that the sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. So for which sin do I lose it? People are saying, well, pastor, but this is too radical. Now people are going to go out and get drunk and commit adultery. They're already doing it. <laughs> Nobody needs my permission to sin. They're already doing it. For crying out loud. But more importantly, though, really, really, on this very serious note, more importantly, let me tell you the benefit. The number one benefit of understanding Christ's finished work is that it's not a freedom to sin. Oh, hallelujah. How I want to please him. How I want to bless him. How I appreciate him. How I thank him for what he has done. I don't want to taste sin at all. Why? Because all of a sudden is magnified. Now, I have a better appreciation for what sent him to that cross. I have a better appreciation for what his death, his burial, and his resurrection did. You cannot put Jesus and Moses in the same room. That would be an insult. It's a freedom not to sin. Yes. Yes, sir. Living above reproach. Drawing on the power of God that's inside of me. Back you can do that. Back you can do it. You've got to do better than this. You are greater than this. The one that's in you is greater than all the forces around you. Hallelujah. Yes, sir. Greater is he that's within me than he that's in the world. It is a freedom from self-righteousness. It is a freedom from performance lifestyle. Folks, I'm telling you, I love everybody here. I hope you guys understand. I really do. But where I am now, if you didn't come back for the next 10 years, it does not matter. I'm serious. I'm serious. Life goes on. Why? Because Jesus still lives. I will not compromise the integrity of the word of God for a friend, a woman, a man, a sister. I don't care what it is. 
I will gladly lose every one of you. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Hallelujah. The Lamb of God. Oh, glory be to your name. Yes, sir. Oh, my goodness. I'm down now. Just parting words. No matter what your position is tonight, don't let the enemy trick you to get into strife, into animosity, into argument with your brother or your sister. It's not worth it. The bottom line is, are you born again? If you are born again, whether you believe in eternal assurance or or conditional salvation, if you are born again, you will see Jesus. So don't allow the enemy to use differing positions to turn you against your brother or your sister. That's the devil. Because if we are born again, at the end of the day, you still see God. Now, let me say this. Stephen Affleck, I really appreciate you. Many of you may not know why I'm saying this, but I'll tell you. When this man joined this church years ago, he was of this position that I just preached tonight. He believed in the eternal assurance of all born again believers. He knew that was, that was not my position. He did not fight me. He never debated it. He didn't say, Pastor, let's look at scriptures. Never. He's here tonight. We never discuss. Have you ever discussed it? Nice. Never. He knew my position and his position. I'm saying this as a parting word to you guys. This is maturity in the body of Christ. Yes, sir. All of those years, yes, sir. to the glory of God, I was secured in who I was and what God has done in me. Yes. And the light I had. Therefore, I had no problems releasing him. He taught Bible school. I didn't bite my nails and say, oh, my God, I hope he doesn't go and say this. What's wrong? <laughs> Why? The church does not belong to me. Amen. One flock one shepherd. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. The chief shepherd. The good shepherd. From there, he became a house pastor. Which means people met in his home. I was not having sleepless nights. Hey, what is Stephen telling them? Never happened. He's preached on Sunday morning services. I was not jewelry. You see, because whatever God has given you, nobody can take it away from you. Thank you, Father. But not only that, recently this man became an elder in this church and all the while I knew. So I'm challenging you. Follow his example and follow my example. Let him be and let me be. So what I'm saying to you is, listen, I've taught you what I believe is God's word. Now the choice is yours. 
and I'm not going to hold you and say, if you don't believe this, Greg, you're going to... No, that will be putting you under the law. You are free to make a decision on your own. Yes, sir. I'm just telling you that on this side, there's much liberty. Turn on the light. Turn on the light, sir. So, Father, we want to thank you for our time together tonight. We bless you, Lord, for the power of your spirit and the power that's liberating in and through your word. Thank you, Father. Bless your sheep as they go home. And we just honor you. We bless you, Father. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. God bless you. Good night.